It's a fundamental commentary, really indictment, really, of how the courts and how criminal legal institutions are very different from other institutions in American society. How they reward people and punish people are very different. Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the program in criminal justice at the Harvard Kennedy School. Today I'm talking to Matthew Clare, the author of Privilege and Punishment, How Race and Class Matter in Criminal Court. The book shows how disadvantaged people, namely poor people and people of color, receive worse outcomes in criminal courts because of breakdowns specifically in their attorney-client relationships. And I wanted to talk about this book because so often the public defender is left out of conversations about racism in the court when we are in fact a locus of racism as well. And I say we because that is my day job and you'll hear me wear that hat in this conversation in ways that I don't normally like to do on this podcast. But I think it's important for the attorney community to grapple with the way that privilege is enacted and exacerbated in our work. So very excited to have this conversation, both because I really liked the book, but I should also in full disclosure tell you my day job is as a public defender. So (laughs) since I read this in preparation for our conversation, it's just been front of mind for me all day long, every day. I'm really glad that you did this. I want to start just by talking about the, the conclusions of your study, and then we can get into it because they were really counterintuitive to what a lot of us are brought up thinking, right? Which is kind of squeaky wheel gets the grease. So Tell me about the findings of your study and how they are counterintuitive to the way we think about other big systems like healthcare or education or something like that. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for uh, having me on and thanks for reading it as a public defender. It's always a pleasure to be in conversation with public defenders about the book. Um, And I'm glad that you've been thinking about it a lot in your own practice. But yeah, the, the major takeaway, I think, especially for sociologists and academics who for decades have really been you know, studying and trying to understand how privileged people and disadvantaged people navigate various institutional spaces. And one common understanding, and I I think this is also increasingly a common understanding among everyday people, not just academics or sociologists, is this idea that if you are agentic and you try to demand things of institutions and you take time to learn things about institutions, that they'll pay off for you. In sociology, there's a lot of work in schools, in hospital settings, in workplaces that show that people who are agentic in this way, they're demanding of institutions, they ask questions of their physicians, they ask questions or uh, critique maybe the professional expertise of their child's teachers, tend to get rewards for doing that. And people who are deferential to these institutional authorities tend to lose out. And this tends to happen along class lines in a lot of this work. So privileged people, middle class people, white people tend to be more demanding of institutions, whereas working class people, people of color and the poor tend to be more deferential. And so one thing that I found and that I think is important to understand is that the courts and maybe the broader criminal legal system as a whole, we can think about prisons or policing interactions These ways of being agentic, of learning and trying to strive to understand the law, legal rights, legal knowledge, and then also trying to assert your legal rights and legal knowledge actually backfire if you're poor um, or working class, whereas if you're privileged, you actually tend to be quite deferential in interactions with attorneys, you defer to legal expertise, and often you're afforded various benefits. So that's sort of one surprise for me as a sociologist and maybe for everyday people as well. And it's a fundamental sort of 
commentary, really indictment really, of how the courts and how criminal legal institutions are very different from other institutions in American society. How they reward people and punish people are very different. But also this is important to understand increasingly because more and more people are engaging with these criminal legal institutions over the past 40 years, over this period of mass incarceration or what I refer to in the book as a period of mass criminalization. When you say that being agentic backfires for poor working class people or people of color in the system, what do you mean? How does it backfire? What does that look like? Yeah, the way that it backfires in the criminal courts is in the attorney-client relationship itself, which is the focus of the book. So in the ways that defendants interact with their defense attorneys, but then also in uh, reference to the court itself or judges, right, and prosecutors. So the way that it backfires in the attorney-client relationship itself has to actually do with, and as I'm sure you're aware of, defense attorneys' recognition that they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. Right, that they understand many times, especially defense attorneys who really care about their clients, not all do, but many of the defense attorneys that I talk to deeply care about their clients, but they recognize the costs of advocating uh, for their clients in certain ways, of frustrating judges if they're you know, pursuing motions that are thought of as frivolous or that have no merit, or even recognizing you know, the classic trial penalty, right? There's This idea that defense attorneys are really trying to effectively represent their clients, and they define that as mitigating a legal sentence, whether that's, you know, earlier stages, right, reducing the bail amount or giving them or or trying to make sure that, you know, they get, I don't know, two years in county jail rather than three years in state prison. And, And so in the effort to do that, they are asking their clients to stop basically you know, trying to press legal rights such as Fourth Amendment rights that maybe they have developed in themselves themselves, or in talking to their community about what is a reasonable search and seizure. Like they have understandings of what that means. They have understandings of how police violated their rights. The defense attorneys are often trying to convince them, persuade them that it's not going to fly. The judge isn't going to buy it. There's just not enough that we can do here to really effectively litigate this motion. So maybe we won't do that. Maybe instead we should really start to think about what your plea deal is going to be instead. And so that is a part of the struggle in the attorney-client relationship. And that's part of the cost for defendants in engaging with their lawyers is maybe the lawyer thinks actually like by telling you we shouldn't do this, I'm helping you in the long run with that ultimate legal outcome. But for a lot of clients, that moment of being able to contest police abuse on the stand or being able to see a police officer lie on the stand is actually quite meaningful for them and could be, right, a different thing that they want from the legal system rather than or in addition to also mitigating a final legal outcome. So it sounds like part of the part of the cause for this, what's the word, for this kind of bad outcome is one defense attorneys simply misunderstanding or not having a full sense of what their clients goals are but even steps before that why is it that folks who are working class or poor or people of color why are they coming in with a different sense of the system and sense of their attorneys and and i guess also what are those perceptions how is it that they come in with such a different approach than more um, privileged people 
Yeah, that's a really great question. And that's something that I really wanted in the book and in the study that the book's based on to really unpack deeply because, you know, talking to lawyers like yourself, oftentimes there was a recognition among many of the public defenders in particular, not as much some of the private attorneys or the bar advocates I spoke to, but really among the public defenders that, yeah, my clients, I understand that many of them are frustrated. Many of them, you know, they're skeptical of me. And so I really wanted to unpack what explains why they come in already distrustful of attorneys who they haven't even met. So what I found is that to be a disadvantaged defendant versus someone who's a privileged defendant, there are various differences in life, right? And so a lot of that has to do with excessive police surveillance from childhood. So we talk about Tim at the beginning of chapter one, who, you know, was starting to be bothered by police, arrested, patted down, and then arrested at the age of 13, and just routine experiences of policing. Tim's a Black man. He grew up in Roxbury, housing projects. He spent some time in Atlanta. Ultimately, he had to deal drugs in order to survive. And he has just had such routine interaction with police that he's had a lot of what scholars talk about as legal cynicism of the law generally, skepticism of the law. And I show how that translates into skepticism of defense attorneys. So prior negative experiences with the legal system, even if it's not particularly particularly with lawyers, is one explanation. Another explanation is simply that, that many disadvantaged defendants recognize the unfavorable position of their court-appointed lawyers, whether they're public defenders or bar advocates. One thing that I'll note and that you're, I'm surely aware of, is that in Boston and in Massachusetts generally, right? Public defenders are actually pretty well-resourced compared to other states. And so, you know, this looks at, you can see like per capita amount funding for, for public defense clients. You can also look at the way that a public defenders or actually bar advocates are compensated. And in some places, the contracting is more by the, by the case rather than by the hours worked, right? Yeah. And so here in Boston, it's by the hours worked. And so that's much better. For, Sorry, for, just to interject yep. quickly, I just want to yeah. define bar advocates are private attorneys who are taking contract work to take court-appointed cases. So they're Correct. like- contracted public defenders. And I just wanted to throw that out there, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes they might have a lot of private clients and they just like pick up a few right every now and then, or like most of their caseload is the, the indigent defense client pool, but they're just not uh, staff public defenders. And so anyway, defendants who are disadvantaged recognize the difficult structural position that their public defenders in and are in. And so they have skepticism, whether public defenders can actually advocate for them if public defenders and bar advocates are routinely interacting with prosecutors and they see them more as professionals who have routine interactions with other professionals rather than a professional who's focused on them specifically as a client. They see private attorneys come in, you know, for one client and then leave whereas their public defender or court-appointed attorney is there for multiple clients. And so they also see the tension of, hey, maybe if they advocate too much for me, they can't advocate for someone else. And so there seems to be a conflict and tension, whereas private attorneys, from their perspective, seem to have a little bit more leverage and ability to really frustrate the system in a way that court-appointed attorneys do not. And then the last thing that I found was just cultural commonality. So disadvantaged defendants, you know, many of them grow up in uh, segregated residential neighborhoods, mostly Black, mostly Latino neighborhoods. And they go to schools that have been um, disinvested by the government. They have experienced not only police violence, but other forms of violence and trauma in their everyday lives. 
contrast with the people who they're working with, many lawyers, and not all, of course, but many lawyers grew up better off. And then, of course, in their professional capacity of lawyer, as lawyers, they've had training in, in not just in undergrad, but also in law schools. So they are in the professional middle class. And there's a distance there and a lack of understanding often that many disadvantaged defendants perceive on behalf uh, or from their, their attorney. So for example, you know, there's one uh, person in the book who I remember he was telling me he was really excited when he was appointed a black woman lawyer. He's a black man himself. He was like, maybe this will be finally a lawyer who really truly understands me. But it turned out because she's middle class, she was not understanding his social position with respect to his class status in comparison to hers. And she was stereotyping him as if as, as many of his other prior attorneys who were white and also middle class had stereotyped him, assumed that he was a drug dealer, assumed that his explanation that he didn't have a criminal record in any other states was, was false, didn't believe him, didn't trust him. And, and so that really shows the distance and cultural lack of cultural commonality between many disadvantaged clients and their public uh, or court-appointed attorneys. So then let's just kind of break down what does an actual attorney-client relationship look like between privileged client and then contrast that with two ways that you describe poor folks attorney client relationships going not going awry but the ways that they often can sort of break down yeah there are three kinds of attorney client relationships that i identify among the people in my study so on the privileged side there's one common way that privileged people interact with their attorneys and that's what i refer to as sort of delegation which involves deference and so Delegation looks like a privileged person. They tend to be middle class. They're white. They rarely have had any interaction with the system. Maybe this is a one-off OUI or DUI offense, and they're pulled into the system. It's a shock and surprise to them. They're very inexperienced with the law because they have not had routine interactions with the law individually or as a community level element, right? There's no conversation with community members and family members that often with the criminal legal system, at least. So they're more willing then to say, uh-oh, maybe this person who's a lawyer who's telling me all these things is actually an expert. And also this lawyer seems to have a lot of cultural commonality with me. They seem to actually care about me. And then also often they tend to have actually selected their lawyer and they tend to be able to hire their lawyer or they have social ties that enable them to be able to find a lawyer, maybe a lawyer who's willing to represent them free of charge or a lawyer who's willing to get a reduced rate. So they just have more reasons to trust their lawyer and they are deferential to the expertise of the lawyer and they are willing to go along with what the lawyer says is going to be their best outcome. And additionally, it is often actually in their favor because what is sort of standardized as a good legal outcome tends to actually take into account what middle class people think is a good legal outcome. And so we can talk a little bit about that with respect to probation versus incarceration and preferences there. So with the disadvantage, there are two types of ways that attorney-client relationships often unfold. One is what I refer to as withdrawals into resistance, which we've been actually talking more about. The disadvantaged person has a lot of built up or cultivated legal expertise and is frustrated when lawyers are not actually listening to their expertise or going along with what they think uh, should be the way that their case should unfold. And then there's what I refer to as withdrawal into resignation. So this is less of a sort of antagonistic relationship, but it still is a relationship that's pulled apart between the lawyer and their client because what's happening in that relationship is the client may have various correlated adversities in their life, dealing with drug addiction, dealing with being unhoused, 
dealing with untreated mental illness, that makes it difficult for them to show up to court or return their lawyer's calls. And often lawyers, of course, are frustrated by this, can't figure out what's going on, don't know their legal preferences, and have to make decisions often without their express or explicit input. And so that type of withdrawal into resignation is less sort of among disadvantaged people. It's less sort of a, a, a world in which they're indicting an unjust legal system and a world in which they really have a bunch of cultivated knowledge about how the law should work. And it's more a situation where the disadvantaged person is kind of just tapped out and dealing with much more pressing issues in their daily life than that court case uh, that the lawyer is concerned about. That last part in particular was an interesting reframing for me personally as an attorney, because I never thought about the clients who kind of disappear as, as possibly being something in which I'm implicated. That one in particular, I, I was kind of able to contextualize it in, well, they've got a lot of other stuff going on. This actually isn't the most important thing on their plate right now, but I never sort of saw myself as part of that narrative. So that was, that was very helpful. You mentioned in passing how poor folks might have a, actually a different evaluation of what a good outcome is, especially vis-a-vis probation versus prison mm-hmm. relative to, to wealthier folks. Can you draw that out a little bit? Cause I, I think that's a very good example of, of a nuance that you might not understand if you don't ask. Yeah. So I think that the courts, this, this being judges, prosecutors, public defenders, policymakers, when they were sort of determining these these ideas of what we now refer to as intermediate sanctions, right, between sort of administrative probation or or nothing at all to prison, there's this idea that there's this sort of hierarchy, like harsher and harsher sort of uh, punishments as you go up. Maybe you add drug treatment to the probation, maybe you add GPS monitoring to the probation and other things. And so there's this assumption, though, that probation is something that is not as harmful to a person or something that people might prefer compared to incarceration. And what I'm arguing in the book and showing if we actually talk to disadvantaged defendants, that actually is not always the case. And that's because this police state in particular and the surveillance of the court makes it such that that's not necessarily a preferable uh, sort of sentence. So there are many people in the study, particularly Black people and working class and poor Black people um, who lived in highly uh, surveilled neighborhoods where there's just a lot of police presence. And they are terrified that by being on probation, that just makes them susceptible to being constantly pulled into the system for little things, accumulating an even greater criminal record. And so for many of them in the study, they reported to me that Sometimes they would prefer a sentence of incarceration over a sentence of probation, because at least when they're incarcerated, they're just in the facility, they do their time, and then they're let out, hopefully not on parole, and they're free. Whereas on probation, they're just so open to just being pulled in for little things that ultimately harm them much more in the long run than just keep doing their time and getting it over with. Yeah, I thought that that's a very important distinction to draw out and such a good example of if you don't ask, you're never going to hear that. You don't build a relationship in which someone trusts you. You're never going to hear that. So then what actually is, I mean, and I think before we get any further, what is this prevalence among disadvantaged or not privileged folks of this type of attorney-client relation, or perhaps more broadly of dissatisfaction with their attorneys? Because that was also kind of a little bit of a gut punch when, when I read it. You know, how, how widespread of an issue is this 
Yeah, that's a really important question. And so just to give you, I think to answer this question, I want to give a better sense of my data. So, you know, I spent time with 63 defendants, some, most of them I interviewed, about 20 or so of them I also followed in various ways. Either I followed their dyad of the attorney and them through the court, or I followed them and I was just with them as they um, were going to court. And so this is not a random sample. And so that's important to know, right, because this is very much qualitative research where I'm trying to understand really important things inductively that we just didn't know as much before. And I'm trying to, to sort of show different types of ways of interaction with attorney-client relationships, but I can't precisely quantify them. So I do give quantifi quantified results to just give a sense like in this sample, that's not random. Here's what it looks like. And I'll tell you what that is. It's about half or more of people who I classify into the disadvantaged category. So that working class people of color, poor people of all races who expressly on the survey that I gave them indicated that they did not uh, feel that their uh, attorney was basically looking out for them. And then in the interviews, it gets even more in-depth and detailed where people who on the survey didn't even maybe state that, but then are getting more details about the distrust um, that they have of their lawyer. So it is pretty, at least in my sample, it is a substantial number of disadvantaged people. But I think it actually may be worse, and I'll tell you why. So in my uh, study, I really tried to focus on uh, getting a lot of class variation. So generally in the criminal legal system, it's much easier to find an interview and talk to someone who's disadvantaged than someone who's privileged. But I really sort of made an effort in my sample to get more privileged people into the study. And so if I had a representative sample, if you will, of all the defendants in Boston, because there are just so many more disadvantaged defendants, especially poor defendants. You know, I have a good number of sort of working class and, and sort of like working poor people, but like poor defendants who are really struggling, who are unhoused, who are, are hard to get in contact with for defense attorneys. And of course, also then for researchers, right? If we had more of those people in the study, I think the distrust would be even greater. So I don't want to, you know, give clear exact numbers because I just don't have a representative sample. But my, my hunch is that this is a major problem. And I think defense attorneys, like I said, are increasingly aware of it, but maybe don't know what its roots are. And then also haven't thought deeply, some of them, not all, of course, about how that implicates what their role is in the legal system in relation to the clients that they're supposed to be defending and seeking justice for. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I had a question lined up, but now I just want to ask. So the ones that you have talked to who have been thoughtful about mm -hmm. what their role, how this implicates their role, what 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 have they said? Because I think that the, a very stupid thing to take from this, but it's an easy thing to say is mm -hmm. like, oh, well, our clients should just stop resisting us because yeah, yeah. It, they're getting worse outcomes, right? You know, it's like mm -hmm. when I tell you to be quiet in court, you be quiet in court, you know, and I don't think that's where we should be taking this. So what are the thoughtful folks saying about kind of, of, of how to process this? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm very glad you brought that up because we should not take from this that we should be coercing defendants even more. <laughs> I think that we should not assume you know, what the client's best interest is. Of course, there might be clients who may have competency issues, and that's very important to think about, but that's not the vast majority of people who are, who are, are going through the legal system. And so, especially given how expansive the legal system has grown in the past 40 years. And so the conclusion that I have come to, and also that some thoughtful lawyers that I've talked to have come to, I won't say all because even the most thoughtful lawyers, so 
by thoughtful, this is really lawyers who came into their legal profession because they cared about racial injustice and inequality. They see their role as public defenders. In the book, they talk to me a lot about this. They see their roles as public defenders as people who really do want to fight for racial justice. And they're focused, though, on doing that at the individual client level. And it's very difficult, given time constraints, given all they have to do for individual clients, to think more broadly about the system level. And that's really where I think even public defenders who are on the ground need to start increasingly thinking more about. And so this looks like excitement about and working with clients who really do uh, recognize the potential negative costs of exercising certain rights, like, you know, uh, pushing a motion to try to get a, um, a police officer on the stand or litigating racial bias and police stops or, or what have you, and really working with them and using them as, not using them, but working alongside them, because many of them actually do want to do this, to push various institutional sort of norms around what's acceptable ways or, or police practices or ways that police collect evidence. And so that could be a potential way to push a systemic change, even if a client may have a potentially harsher outcome as long as that client's aware of that and is willing to accept that and, and wants to go that route. The other thing is public defenders, just like everyone else, are people in everyday life. And so, you know, they can be part of, you know, broader social movements. They can contribute their expertise where it's useful to people on the ground and organizers on the ground. I think great models of this are here on the West Coast around San Jose area, Silicon Valley debug and participatory defense networks. There's, there's networks in, in Boston that I'm aware of where really this is sort of working with and alongside lawyers and, and organizers to be able to push for change. So I think having these systemic conversations is important and not losing sight of them while you're also trying to protect individuals who are, who are um, your clients. One of the systemic things that you mentioned in the book, which I thought was interesting also was attorney choice, a way for folks to choose who their lawyer is, even if it's among the duty attorneys that day, but just to have some sense of, of not being just randomly assigned to this person who's hands them a business card and says, I'll call you in a few days. You know, I mean, I thought that was a really interesting example. And I'm curious where you, where you either came up with that idea or have seen it elsewhere, if anywhere. Yeah, so that idea actually sort of, so first um, I'll say this was actually one of the other causes of mistrust was, yeah, here I am at arraignment and I'm just assigned someone, maybe there are four people on and the court just gives me a person I had no uh, agency or choice in making um, that decision of who was going to be my attorney. That's unbelievable, really. If we really step back and think about that, that's unbelievable because the attorney-client relationship is the type Unlike really any, I mean, maybe the doctor-patient relationship is this intimate, right? But with the attorney-client relationship, you're telling your lawyer really damaging stuff. Like this is a very personal relationship. And how are you going to do that with someone who you've never had any interaction with and you didn't even get to choose, right? That's a really intense uh, thing to require of someone. And so I think that this is very much one potential easy way to make clients feel that they have are being listened to and that they're not being silenced by giving them choice. Um, this can happen, and, and part of how I came to this idea was this can happen within offices, and I argue that it also should happen though at the court level. So the way I saw it when I was embedded in one of the public defender's offices in Boston was some attorneys would tell me, and I did see one this happen with one client, that if you know the relationship was on the skids and it wasn't an effective relationship, they would swap right within the office. They'd say, okay, this person seems 
to really want this kind of attorney. Maybe the person had issues, you know, maybe it was a male client who had issues with a woman attorney, or maybe it was issues with just the, the attorney's style and, and the client just wanted someone else. But that's not able to happen, right, among bar advocates who are in solo practices, right? And so, and bar advocates, of course, are taking up the majority of the caseload, you know, 75% of the caseload, of the indigent caseload. So I think that structurally within the courts, I think it would be something where judges would basically allow a client to choose. Obviously, there are negative possible implications and unintended consequences of this. So if a certain attorney gets a reputation for being someone who works really well with clients, then the other attorneys aren't getting cases. But maybe then that would push other attorneys to change right their practice and to really have you know better bedside manner if you will and really be able to engage with clients better and learn tactics to do that so i think ultimately it's something that i think is pretty low cost immediate change that would probably have some some meaningful changes um, and benefits for the attorney client relationship i think so much of reading this book for me was you read something and then you have this lurch of defensiveness like oh that wouldn't work because blah blah, blah. <laughs> and i think this is such a good example of you're like attorney any choice. You couldn't do this because all the new lawyers would never get picked. Or, you know, what if I'm sitting waiting to get picked and nobody picks me? But also, isn't that indicative of, of maybe people don't want you as their lawyer and you should, <laughs> there's obviously possibilities for racism and sexism and all that. Right. Stuff. But, but yeah, there, it's just, it's just this constant defensiveness. And then, okay, wait, let me actually think about why that's bad. And if that's actually bad, or if what that's telling me is that we have another problem here. And, and it encourages, I, I hope, so I love that, you know, there's an immediate defensiveness. And I always, it's funny, when I wrote this book, I was so fearful of how defense attorneys would, would respond to it as some, you know, some defensiveness. But I must say, defense attorneys have been really, that I've spoken to, at least into my face, have been really open to many of these suggestions. And I think that one in particular, you know, it's very much a, a situation where it just, yeah, it makes, it actually does make sense. And there are so many things about the court system that are just routinized. They're just, it's the way it's always been. Yep. It's just the way the system works. And I really want the book to be a way to, from the, def the defendant's perspective, from people who are really most impacted by the system, who haven't had voice in the system for so long, to be able to share like, here are thoughts on how the system could be improved from my perspective. Right. Um, and to really shed light on that and to really sort of push lawyers to get a little bit uncomfortable and think carefully about what they've just taken for granted. And it's, you know, it's such a reminder of that 80% of what happens in the court system is how things are done, not the law. So, yeah. And I remember when I started as a new lawyer, I was terrified all the time because I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm supposed to talk to the court first or, you know, and then I, I went to go clerk, which was great because I got to see from the other side that, you know, most attorneys don't practice in the same courtroom every day. And yep. it, at the end of the day, even if you piss off the clerk or whatever, or the prosecutor's office, cause you're asking for something they never do. If the law exists, you can do it. Right. But I think that because it's a, it's a punishment bureaucracy, right. People really value the way things are done because they have, it has to move like that. That is actually another thing that I really, really hope people take away from the book. I deeply believe that in many ways, the people in the book, their understandings of how the system should work are totally valid. They could yeah. tell the system would work. It's just that, yeah. you know, we've taken for granted the way it works. We've taken for granted what it means to do certain things. And it's just amazing to me 
how modifiable and changeable constitutional jurisprudence is. You know, I'm not a lawyer. And so part of me, I think, you know, I'm kind of on their side because I'm a little bit naive. I'm not a professional legal professional also. But talking to lawyers, it always amazes me how when I ask, why is this done this way? Or why is this different in this courtroom? Not even courthouse or jurisdiction. It's these informal practices and policies that are justified by a legal system where there are just multiple ways you could justify things. And that's something I really want people to have a radical imagination with respect to the attorney-client relationship and then also what we do with defendants, people who've, who've caused harm. Yeah. Yeah, it is so true. I I have a I shared a, a client with a, a coworker of mine. He had the superior court case and I had the district court case. And this this guy was in custody, in federal custody on something else. An amazing jailhouse lawyer. He mm. he was pro se in his federal case. And you know, I was expecting this attorney who's very experienced and he's been around our office for a long time. And I this was the first time I was working with him. I was expecting him to roll his eyes and be like, oh, you know, every time I talk to him, it's an hour-long conversation. And you know, he's always got some idea of what motion to file. And instead he was like, you know, 80% of the time he says something and I'm like, yeah, that might work. You know? So it, it is, it does just require the ability to just think differently. Differently. And, 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 not good and at that. Right. And then also not have the disincentive. I'm worried about moving up in the legal profession. I think one thing that, so in the book, two of the lawyers are no longer working in the office, totally moved to another state. One is not doing public defense work at all anymore. And part of it is basically they're like, I can't continue doing this job because I'm going to probably get myself fired or pushed out because I want to do it in a way, unlike how I've been doing it. I want to do it in a way that's actually trying to mess up the gears in the system. If you want to do that, you're not going to, you know, move up professionally. That incentive is really problematic, but I'm sure you met some of them. There's there's a handful of attorneys that I can, CPCS public defenders constantly trying to burn it down from the inside. Yeah. And but they have there is this repeat game problem. You know what I mean? And you have to be you have to worry about blowback mm-hmm. on your future clients anyway. So I I, I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole, but I just thought that was an interesting one. So let me ask you this. It seems to me like one major implication of this study that I picked up on was that oftentimes conversations about racism don't often touch on public defenders because there's other very racist parts of the court, but that we are also very much implicated in this. There was a big report that just came out in Massachusetts on disparate outcomes for people of color in the trial courts. And the takeaway was that folks of color are are getting way longer sentences, and this would play directly into it. So you know, I think that's an important systemic implication. Are there other sort of places that you think that this research should be taken or folks that need to hear this other than the, than the defense community who I think needs to understand what their role is in all of this? Yeah. You know, I think just in conversations around mass incarceration and like the problems of the criminal legal system, I think we often focus on the tail ends, policing, and then prisons. And of course, there's an assumption that, yeah, there's this middle segment that's like shuffling people into prisons. But I think there is not as much conversation, and I hope there's increasingly more about the ways that courts cover for and and basically legitimate police abuse and violence, and how these dynamics in the attorney-client relationship with defense attorneys not pushing certain motions, not questioning even the definition of what counts as reasonable suspicion or probable cause for an arrest, helps to also justify the current legal infrastructure around 
right? How we think about what counts as like permissible policing practices. And so I think that's important to understand how the courts legitimate abuses on the tail ends, but also the courts have their own sort of abuses. And part of it goes through the attorney-client relationship. But I also hope that the book also shows that part of it also is not just the attorney-client, or much of it really is not just the attorney-client relationship, but prosecutors and judges who actually have a lot of discretion and are using it for on average on net terrible ways that are harming and contributing to a lot of injustice in the system. And that's because this is the way the court system is set up. And so I think I'm increasingly, and I do in the book, and I am in an um, article in the California Law Review, encouraging conversation around what it might mean to abolish the criminal courts, to remove the criminal courts from the way that we even adjudicate harm in society, and to push many of the aspects of what we do in the courts to more community-centered organizations, you know, peacekeeping groups and or peacekeeping programs. Many in New York, there's some here in the Bay Area. And, and also to really think about ways that we should invest increasingly in transforming harm or, or reducing harm by transforming the basic inputs that make it more likely for people in my study to be in the system in the first place. Uh, such as terrible educational experiences, the alienation that they experienced in their everyday lives, in their neighborhoods, at school, in their families, the trauma that they experienced in their families, and pushing more resources rather than at the tail end of dealing with harm once it happened, but at the front end of trying to prevent harm from happening in the first place. So those are some of the takeaways that I hope are beyond just the attorney-client relationship and what defense attorneys themselves can take from the book. Well, when you when the article comes out, let me know. I'm excited to read it and we'll talk about that. I just, as I said, I'm just so grateful, one, that you took the time to talk to me and two, that you did this because I've been reflecting on it both in my own role as a public defender and also just in thinking about the ways that the court system creates this veneer of legitimacy at the at the expense often of, of people's sort of silence. And and so I, I'm, I'm very grateful and thank you for taking the time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Poddington Bear for composing our theme music. And as always, to Brian Welch and the folks at PCJ for making this possible.